1: is a member of the Great Big Owl family.
2: This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words.
0: What do you like this? Um <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music.
3: It's Thursday night, it's January the 24th, 1980, it's Chop Music episode 48 part 4, and myself, Taylor Parks and Simon Price are suckling at the teat of the Aventis. Let's move on.
2: And I don't want to hold your hand. Nobody there as usual. see. 79 was a good year for the specials with gangsters and a message to you, Rudy, and now they go into the '80s with this new one. Too much, too young.
4: You're too much.
3: about not being able to grab a handful of the audience and introduces Too Much Too Young by the special, a.k.a. We've sucked off the specials every possible chance we've had on chart music and this is the follow-up to the double A side, a message to you, Rude, slash nightclub, which got to number 10 in November of 1979. It's the lead cut from the EP The Special aka Live, which was recorded at the Lyceum in London and Tiffany's in Coventry last year and is an adaptation of the 1969 Lord Chalmers instrumental Birth Control married to lyrics by Jerry Dammers about some girl who's gone got herself in the family way. It also features covers of Guns of Navarone, Long Shot Kick the Bucket, Liquidator and Skinhead Moonstomp, and it's crashed into the chart this week as the highest new entry at number 15.
1: And here, ladies and gentlemen, is the highlight of this episode. It's just laughably good, isn't it? It's ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, literally, I deliberately chose to watch this with a critic head on rather than just enjoying it like I mm. usually do. And I started laughing because it just does too many simple things too perfectly mm. and everything gels just too naturally. It's absurd. It's outrageous. Uh, it just makes you laugh out loud. Uh, and in this case, I think that critical response is actually less complex than the listener's response because musically this is very simple but I think the pleasure you get from the record as a listener is more complex and bittersweet at a gut level which Mm. is sort of normally you'd say that's the most interesting thing about it it's not the most interesting thing about this record but it's an interesting thing about this record because of all of theirs I think this is the one that best captures that weird mixture of darkness and light that's at the heart of everything they did, right? Mm. I mean, they, they've been on chart music before and a lot has been said about their cultural and historical background and context. But what I always got from their records as a kid who was slightly too young to participate mm. um, is what really the same feeling I get from them now as an adult who's too old and too distant in time, which is the sense that everything in these people's lives is grey and painful and painful and soul destroying except this pure current of joy and vitality that runs through the music and the constant activity and nothing else gets in so Mm. there's no green fields or vague romantic possibilities do you know what i mean there's nothing happening Mm. in a dream world it's just about this constant tussle between on the one hand boredom and frustration and poverty and getting beaten up and getting dumped and hangovers and pressure and miles and miles of blood-stained concrete sprinkled with broken glass. And on the other hand, this rapidly beating heart and fast music and open mind and friendship and and compulsion to dance mm. and the energy generated by that contrast and that conflict, which is very nineteen eighty. Uh, goes a long long way when you're as good and as natural as the specials Mm. to my mind
3: this was when it was on the album it was the weakest track on the whole album it was the one I liked the least I didn't own the specials album didn't own it for years but I didn't have to because you heard it everywhere you heard it out of people's bedroom windows you heard it at the youth clubs you went to so when this came out, it was like, oh, my fucking God, this is it. This, this is it. This is what I want to listen to for the rest of my life. Yeah. Simon, where do you
5: think this stands in the canon of special singles? In a weird way, it's the great lost special single because um, the one mm. that you'll always see on you know, BBC4 documentaries is Ghost Town uh, because blah, blah, Brixton mm. riots, blah, blah, and all of that. But um, this one... Um, I think is as magnificent, and it's magnificent for its lack of social responsibility. Mm. It's a petulant record. It's quite vile in a way. And the record that I group it together with in my brain is Bodies by the Sex Pistols, right? Now, Mm. the legendary feminist rock critic Ellen Willis wrote about bodies uh, in an essay called Beginning to See the Light. And she wrote about grappling with the apparent paradox that she as a feminist could be more excited by the sex pistols with this kind of anti-abortion tirade than by Mm. uh you know the the wholesome positivity of most what she called women's music um she wrote music that boldly and aggressively laid out what the singer wanted loved hated as good rock and roll did challenged me to do the same even when the content was anti-woman anti-sexual, in a sense, Mm. anti-human. The form encouraged my struggle for liberation. Similarly, timid music made me feel timid, whatever its ostensible politics. I think it's a brilliant piece of writing. Um, I'm not sure what Mm. Ellen Willis thought of Too Much Too Young or uh, if she even heard it, but um, I would like to think that she might have been excited by Too Much Too Young in much the same way that she was by Bodies. The, The two songs are not exactly... Comparable. One is anti abortion, one is pro contraception, but they both involve angry mm. men telling women what to do with their reproductive systems, right? Um, mm. And here's the thing with the specials right? there, there's a real dichotomy between what they're generally held to represent, which is racial equality and pacifism and all that stuff, and what their records mm. were actually about, which a lot of the time was yeah, bitter. Yeah borderline misogyny songs like little bitch Mm. and stupid marriage as well as too much too young um in fact you can listen to the first specials album if you choose to in the same spirit as abc's the lexicon of love and just find yourself wondering about the woman who made jerry damers feel that way just like you wonder about the woman who made martin fry feel that way dude what did she do to you Mm. you know um some Mm. of too much too young is almost right wing. Um ain't he cute? No he ain't. Mm. He's just another burden on the welfare state. Yeah. Right? Um so that for for a record which is I think only about two minutes long and we only get um, ninety seconds of it on this episode of Top of the Pops, there's already so much to unpack there. Yeah. Um by the way, the mm. footage we see, it's not um from the Lyceum gig. Um it's not from Dance Craze, the movie, either. It's from Rock Goes to College, mm. um, which was filmed in Colchester right. the previous year. And it had only just been broadcast on BBC Two on the 21st of January. So just three days before this Top of the Pops. Right. So TOTP had this ready-made clip of it, ready to go. Um, so right. we're not actually hearing the version from the EP. What we're hearing, it's not the London Lyceum audio. It is that clip from Rock Goes to College in Colchester. Um so, this you yeah, know yeah, there's quite that. yeah, and i yeah, I'm a bit nerdy about it, I sort of compared various clips, um, there's quite a lot about too much too young, which is not as it seems then, um because the famous even the famous crowd shot on the front cover is actually from a selector mm. gig, I've been told, rather than a specialist gig. <laughs> um, so, and that's a brilliant cover. It's a great cover, yeah, yeah. Just all these, like, scrawny little oiks with their, you know, um, suede head haircuts and Fred Perry's just looking like they're in the best place and having the best time of their lives. Mm. Um and yeah, you mentioned it's based on uh, Lloyd Chalmers, a.k.a. Lloyd Terrell, birth control, which is hilarious, by the way. Yes, I would urge everyone to check out the talking bits, like Doris, move that pussy from there. Yes, <laughs> that's kind of well, it's kind of pussy-related humor, um, and, and I I only realised recently that the special's rendition of it, well, really, it's a kind of a new song, isn't it? Because you know, um, Damers wrote so many lyrics, they're not. Anywhere near the Lloyd Charmers one, um, mm. but I only realised that melodically it's very similar to Gangsters slash Al Capone. Um, mm. You know that call me mature, call me a poser. Mm. It's, you know it's very similar, actually. Yeah. Um, you mentioned all the cover versions on there that, that on you know the Special AK Live EP. So you, as well as uh, Birth Control, Too Much Too Young, you have got Guns and Avron long shot kicked a bucket liquidator skinhead moonstop it was basically i don't know if you felt this but it was like a beginner's guide to original Definitely. Scar. it's exactly the fans. it's like it's like yeah. here you are it's handing it to you you know you two-tone fans here you are this is where we got it from go off and find out about that which yes. is brilliant you know yeah and um and, and and again um on those live tracks those extra tracks there's a moment that runs contrary to the received idea about the specials. Everyone feels sorry for them, uh, you know, rightly in a way, for attracting skinhead aggro at their uh. gigs. But there's literally a bit where the band are chanting, stomp on his head, specials. Yes. On one of the tracks, you know. Um, I agree with you that Too Much Too Young itself was quite a slight negligible track on the album. Um, mm. Much slower for a start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's in that select handful of songs where the definitive version is the live version. Yeah. Um, so that puts it along with um, "No Women, No Cry." I want you mm. to want me whole lot of Rosie, my ding-a-ling, and yes. uh, arguably Purple Rain. Right. And and we only get 90 seconds, as I say. It cuts off before the final bit. Of the course. final bit, ain't you heard of the starving millions? Ain't you heard yeah. of contraception? Do you really want to programme of sterilization? State control of the population? Boom, it's in your, in your living room. Uh, keep a generation gap, try mm-hmm. wearing a cap. That was considered too controversial. Yeah. It can't have been for time reasons, because God knows they played enough of that bloody boom town yeah.
3: Well, they faded track, it out right? on Radio 1 as well.
5: Right, yeah, yeah. We Although we do hear Linval Golding using a variation on the word for black children that Boris Johnson got into mm. trouble for using, so uh, that's that's uh, quite yeah. notable uh, in the current political contest. And we get and we do get Terry Hall's ad lib "You yes. silly moo," <laughs> which was probably yes. my favourite bit of yes. the whole song. <laughs> I
3: mean, of course. You know, This song was an absolute fucking anthem at both yeah. the community centre and the youth club that I went to, simply because yes. it was brilliant, it was dead fast, uh, and you could shout contraception, sterilisation, and try wearing a cap dead loud, which was a really important thing for an 11-year-old to do at the time. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: that's one of the things this record makes me think of is a lot of rough older boys pushing and spitting. Yeah. Boys. <laughs> no, but going back to what you are saying, Simon, about the, the sort of that, that weird nastiness in a lot of special stuff, what it is, I think, there's a bit in civilization where Sir Kenneth Clark is talking about this hideous, screeching bird face that's carved into the prow of a Viking ship and comparing it to the calm and grace and reason and sophistication of classical Greek sculpture. And he points at this Viking thing. He says, this is a powerful work of art, but it comes from a culture which knows only fear and darkness. Mm. Mm. Well, what I think he missed out there is that, in fact, it comes from a culture which knows only fear and darkness and excitement. Mm. And when you bear that in mind, you can say something similar about this record. But there's one key difference which makes this better, Um, The Screaming Viking Bird says, this is a terrible world, prepare to be pillaged. Uh, Whereas this says, this is a terrible world, how can we try to exist within it? And however nasty and spiteful and grimy uh, special songs could get, there was always that positive charge, Mm. which is why their music endures the way it does. When a lot of other music similarly grown in the cold depressed provincial towns of england in the late 70s and early 80s seems to be of no relevance or value now mm. even as the times turn back towards that sort of hollow desperate feeling you know but there always has to be something else you know something uh, magically human uh and in good art even low art there always is and, of course, five
3: years later, the BBC would demand that every pop star say something about Johnny's. So,
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pioneers. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I don't know about you, Al, but um, I did feel like we're yes. number one. We yes. are. You know, us. Yeah. It's yeah, our band. Definitely, yeah. Just so yeah. exciting. Yeah. Second time round, when it was Ghost Town, they'd all but split mm. up by that point, and it was just a bit of a sort of, you know, valedictory thing. But yeah. this one... It's like, yes, we're taking on the world. And then um, even, you know, in the outro here, Mike Reed goes all power to two-tone records yes. in the 1980s. I didn't see this episode, but had I seen it, I would have thought he was brilliant yes. for saying that. And I'd be like, yes, it's yes. our time, you know.
3: <laughs> and, I mean, the only downside of this is that, you know, Simon, you like me, you, you must have watched this and just assumed that every gig you were going to go to in your life was going to be as brilliant <laughs> as this one looked because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's just perfect the yeah. band are going fucking man Jerry Dammers is like an excitable puppet
5: well if you watch the full clip from uh, Colchester there's a stage invasion and it's not in any way kind of aggro it's just yeah. just joyful you know. Yeah.
3: so the following week Too Much Too Young soared all the way to number one staying at the summit of Mount Pop for two weeks before being usurped by... Coward of the Counter by Kenny Rogers. (laughs) Fuck's sake. 1980 there. The follow-up, the double A-side rat race Rude Boys Out of Jail will get to number five in June of this year, but the special AKA Live EP became the first EP to get to number one since the Russos phenomenon in nineteen seventy-six, and the second live single to get to number one in the UK since My Dingling by <laughs> Chuck Berry in nineteen seventy-two, which was recorded in the Locarno in Coventry. Ooh. Nice. <laughs>
2: far to two-turn records in the 1980s The Specials had too much too young Now a song written by the very talented Mike Bat This is Caravans from Barbara Dixon.
4: The early light is breaking
0: The morning sun is waiting in the sky And nothing I I
3: hovering over an unlit stage in a circular insert like Big Brother, wishes two-tone every success in the 1980s before bigging up his Tory mate, Mike Batt.
1: Yeah, what he actually says is, all power to two-tone records of the 1980s, now a song written by the very talented Mike Batt. Yes. Mike Reed, with each foot on a different horse there. Mm. (laughs) And it's a real handbrake turn, isn't it? It's like, my God. Sadly, not with each foot and arm chained to a different horse, <laughs> sent galloping in opposite directions. Yes. Like a like a plastic mod Robert Francois Damiel. <laughs> that would certainly give Go With Noakes a run for its money.
3: <laughs> he fucks up the title of the song, though. It's actually Caravan Song by yeah. Barbara Dixon. We've covered Barbara Dixon in chart music number no. 29 when she notched her first hit single with Samet in 1976. Since then, she's had only one more hit with Another Suitcase and Another Haul from the stage show Evita, which got to number no. 18 in March of 1977. She's released a handful of flop singles since then and spent time as a backing singer on two Jerry Rafferty LPs in the late 70s. This single. The follow-up to Come Back With The Same Look In Your Eyes, which failed to chart, has been written by Mike Batt and is from the soundtrack of the 1978 Anthony Quinn film Caravans, which was filmed in Afghanistan and is about the missing daughter of an American senator. And it's up this week from number 70 to number 53. And here we go, to Ronnie's
5: time, everyone. Yeah, I mean, my first thought was one word. Why? You know... I mean, mm. I guess it's something. Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why. Exactly. It's something for the old folks. I mean, like the Nolans, Barbara Dixon is a BBC woman to the core. She's totally know? a BBC woman. And yeah. it's something for the old folks. This wasn't even in the top 40. So I did no. wonder why it's, I, I, I suppose they were desperate in late January because it was just after Christmas. Most of the records that were options had already been hanging around forever. So they're sort of, mm. you know, they're sort of forced to reach outside the 40 a little bit. Um, it's remarkable. She's only thirty-two. I know we do this thing with footballers and with yeah. everyone. We've done this millions, millions of times. But people, yeah. looked older in uh, They looked older, younger mm. in those days. Um, I'd never heard of her at this point. I, I know now, thanks to the magic of chart music, among other things, that she had had that mm. hit "Dance to Me" in '76. That had passed me by at the time. The first I knew of her yeah. was January, February, which is horrific. Um, which came mm-hmm. out, in, but the lyrics to this about making a break for freedom. It's basically a poor man's everybody's talking. That's what I'd I, yes. I like it to be. There, there's almost nothing to say about it, for me anyway, but parents all over the country would be seeing this as a respite from horrible stuff like the specials. You know, they'd yes. be turning to their children and saying, see, that's a nice song. Yeah, because yeah. this,
3: yeah. this is serious Radio 2 business here, isn't mm. it? It's, it's you, the night, and the music, music. It, 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 listening to this feels like being trapped in a late-night taxi driven by an antiques dealer who's down on his luck.
1: thing is, I can sort of identify with this song because every single holiday I had up until the age of 12 was in a caravan. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't say that I lived out Barbara Dixon's Restless roaming gypsy dream. No, it was a static caravan, wasn't it? I'm gonna break away, she sings, and follow Mm. where the birds of freedom fly. Yeah, because yeah, because it was a static caravan, yeah. Uh, and we only had it on a timeshare, so you had to pick a week in the summer and stick to it, yeah. Book early for the factory fortnight, but (laughs) but still, that experience does make me wonder. Just how emancipated Barbara's going to feel when she's inhaling spores and pissing in a bucket, <laughs> um, and trying to refasten a little semicircular window with a broken latch, yeah. just using a length of garden twine that she found in the drawer, yeah. you know, to keep out a rainstorm, which sounds like the Grand National sounds to the worms of Aintree. <laughs> um, I, I, if I could go back in time and speak to her, I would say Barbara think on before yeah. you go down Don aimot. <laughs> <laughs> Don say, Amott, yes. Don I need to break away. I need to I need to follow where the birds of freedom fly she says. Uh, I've got this dream of of trying to cook a full english breakfast on a single <laughs> hob connected to a Calagas yeah. cylinder in a kitchen space the size of a viet cong bamboo cage. I to become the motorway equivalent of a dickhead wearing a backpack on the tube, <laughs> just with, with my, my rolling home sheared in half by Christian Salverson 18-wheelers jackknifing <laughs> as i change lanes obliviously in front of them. And uh, Don Amott would just stare back at her and say, ''Are you Sir Isaac Newton?'' She said, no, no, but I get that a lot.
3: <laughs> Don a king of caravans. Do you get them adverts? No. no,
5: it must be Midlands thing. What?
3: Around about the time of The Lion Sleeps Tonight, so it had a bit of a Burundi-style feel to it. And uh, Don <laughs> Amok was essentially a lion with a big crown. Yeah. Uh, but on one advert, he suddenly went berserk and started clawing at the faces of his own caravans, which looked fucking <laughs> terrified. And the voiceover went, You better get there quickly. He's tearing his caravan prices to shreds. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. but But yeah, obviously, you know, I, I didn't know at the time it was a... It was a, a film about Afghanistan. She was singing about, but because um, I thought, I thought the line "I need to breathe, I need to leave." I thought she was singing "I need to breed, I need to lead, which would have made it perfect for Watership <laughs> Down
5: and perfect for following on for a song about not breeding.
3: Yes, that would have that would have put oh, yeah. Jerry Dammers in his
5: box. Quite topical as well, being about Afghanistan at the time when the Russians had mm. just invaded. Yeah. yeah, more to this than meets the eye, obviously.
1: It's funny though, isn't it? With with stuff like this and and january february um she was really in the vanguard of what you could call uh, aop adult yeah. orientated pop you know it's like there was no more pericomo and a new generation of aging squares wanted something popular with a sort of a hint of hint of the modern to it so you suddenly got this stream of stuff like Mike Oldfield's singles, um mm. Krista Berg's early singles, uh yeah. Kiki D, uh The Old Sailor, you know, like January, February is almost the mm. definitive Brooks. example of that. Mm. Much more With than all this. the looks. Yes, yeah. <laughs> because this is 'cause this record is mm. still half in the seventies. Do you know what I mean? It's got like that sort of yes. got like that flake advert shit about being a, a soft yeah. focus hippie gypsy, you know, like a, or mm. a, a gypsy who's as middle class as the mm. Doctor's Latimer. Uh, but it's, it, whereas January, February is pure forced modernity, you know, it's like AOP, all mm. tooled up for the new decade, like wired for sound, you know. It's music that's spiritually roller skating through Milton Keynes' shopping (laughs) centre. But I I prefer this. There's a part of me that actually quite likes this record, but, you know, there are parts of all of us which need quarantining (laughs) to be any hope for the future, you know. So
3: So the following week, Caravan Song jumped nine places to number 44, but stalled at number 41 the week after. But the follow-up... January, February would get to number 11 for two weeks in April of this year.
2: Arranged and produced by Mike Bat How can he write such good songs And how can Bob producers sing so well Don't ever let him tell you That rock and roll went away Go on chaps Give us
4: a burst
5: Go on
3: Ah! After another lick of Mike Bat's arse Reed reappears over a sunburst shape above the studio and doesn't even bother to tell us the name of the next song or even the band. It's Buzz Buzz a Diddlet by Matchbox. Formed in Middlesex in 1971, Matchbox were a 50s revival band who played the TED pub circuit of the 70s. In 1978, they acquired the services of lead singer Graham Fenton, the former frontman of the House Shakers, who played the opening slot at the London Rock and Roll Show, which also featured Bill Haley, Little Richard, Chuck Beret, Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis and Gary Glitter. And worked as Gene Vincent's backing band on assorted UK tours. Fenton steered the group towards a rockabilly bent, and after encouraging noises were made in the music press, they were signed to Magnet Records. And after their first single, Black Slacks, flopped, the next, rockabilly rebel got to number 18 in december this is the follow-up a cover of the 1961 freddie cannon single which was immediately rushed out late last year and this week it's gone up eight places to number 22 well wow. matchbox come on into the chart music circle it's just rocky shop and the replays now for the full set i believe yeah true so where do we start with this i can guess
5: i think well uh i don't trust these fuckers Um, at the time I would have seen them as harmless old duffers having a bit of rock and roll fun
3: super show waddy waddy really yeah
5: and good luck to them I would have thought at the time probably Mm. but with the confederate flag massively displayed on stage and the whole rebel yell thing and all that that signifies it's impossible not to find something deeply suspicious about them.
3: Yeah, the hand does rise to the chin, doesn't it? I mean, normally, they've been on top of the popsy 4 with a massive Confederate flag as a backdrop. And in this instance, they've got a Confederate flag draped over the bass drum, and they've also got an upright bass
5: with a Confederate flag on the back. Yeah, they're doubling down on it. It
1: It's basically their corporate logo.
5: Mm. And, um, you know, there there are people um, to this day who will tell you, oh, you know, it's not a racist flag. It's just about... The pride in the South and all kind of bollocks, but mm-hmm. you know, you just ask black people in the South how they feel when they see that flag, you know, and that's that's all you need to know. Graham Fenton here, singer, with his aquiline nose and his tiny eyes, um, like the character actress Anne Way from Carry On and Faulty Towers, um, <laughs> uh, and and his black stetson and his bootlace tie. He reminds me of a small town sheriff um, enforcing yeah. Jim Crow laws, mm-hmm. um, probably making the specials sit at the back of the bus.
3: Um, <laughs> or Lemmy's dad. Yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. I mean, um, let's
3: not let's not even talk about America. Let's talk about the Confederate flag in Britain, because you know it it, it was a definite thing in uh, the rock and roll revival of Britain. You know, there's a in Quadrophenia, there's a rocker with it on the back of his jacket who gets thrown off some railings onto the beach. And I've been doing some research on future episodes of Chart Music. Yeah. And I came across an article in Melody Maker by your old Gaffer Alan Jones. Oh, yeah. Where he goes to a TED night in London. According to the article, one of the bands he sees are called the Confederate States of America. Right. And he goes on to to say that they're specialist shops in the UK that sold Confederate flags and Ku Klux Klan records.
4: Hmm.
5: So, you know, I contend that Matchbox clearly know what they're on about here. You didn't even have to go to specialist shops. I remember there was a, a record shop in my town where they would sell band badges and patches, so on patches, and you could buy a sew-on patch of the Confederate flag. And, you know, there were sort of rockabilly kids, Ted's, at my school, who mm. wore that, probably without really knowing what it meant.
3: Well, but to us, it his... was
5: the Dukes of Hazard, wasn't it? Yeah. That had just yeah. come All... out
3: in March of last year. So Exactly.
5: You know... All good knockabout fun, it yes. would seem. But then you look at Ted's culture in the UK... And there was always a right-wing element mm. to it. Um, in in the nineteen fifties, there were um, Notting Hill race riots where the Teds were sort of basically there with a white power agenda.
1: Well, it's hard to call though, isn't it? Because there were people uh, in that time and place for whom the Confederate flag just meant hoedowns and barbecued pork you know Mm. and shots of jack daniels i mean they were (laughs) they were just the good old boys never doing never meaning no harm yeah so they didn't see anything wrong with you know making every object associated with them look like an aerial view of the general lee um the i mean the best thing you can say is that in 1980 a lot of british people Genuinely didn't associate the Confederate flag consciously with a culture in which black people were subjugated or enslaved. Mm. They just associated it with a culture where black people happened to be absent. And, like you say, yeah. there was uh, you, the same shops where you'd go and buy your madness badges would have Confederate mm. patches, and you know, like a lot of them for would-be Hell's Angels, some of whom would have been aware gleefully aware of the Mm. connotations right but i don't know for a lot of people uh, it was just a signifier of sort of gritty southern fried machismo and not necessarily akin to waving a swastika to demonstrate how much you like sausages and lager you know Mm and competent engineering. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, that's really hard to understand now.
3: Any of the youths looking at this now, they might as well have a swastika on that base.
1: Yeah. yeah, preso- I mean, it's easy to forget that before the internet made everything, and especially American issues, global, mm-hmm. uh, there was at least more of an excuse for ignorance. Uh, mm. But you just, you can't call it because uh, there there was that on the one hand. On the other hand, there was people who did know exactly what they were doing. Um, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, wouldn't want to cast aspersions on Matchbox. But
3: it is weird seeing a Confederate flag on uh, Cheggers' Plays pop <laughs> when Matchbox was on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mind you, Swap Shop had a lab with a swastika flag as well, so you know. Yeah, swings and
5: roundabouts. Yeah, there's a bit in the outro where um, Mike Reed's particularly impressed by the guitarist guy jumping up on the bass, mm. the bass player's uh, upright bass. But Mm. that is some half assed bullshit in itself. Because, Mm. do it properly, right? Um, Lee Rocker from the Stray Cats, he plays his upright bass while jumping up on it himself and just balancing on the fucking spike. That's impressive. Mm. Yeah. But then, you know, we've said it before, the Stray Cats came along... Pretty much to render these bands unemployed overnight. Yeah.
1: But I don't know about much, because I don't know anything about them. Wouldn't want to cast aspersions. They might just have been a bit thick, you know. I mean, maybe, Mm. because they strike me as those sort of British people who think Americans are like superheroes, you know what I mean? Mm. You still get it now in a slightly different form, but you used to get it all the time then. They thought Americans were like... It was like a British person who'd gone in a phone box and stripped off their woolly jumper and CNA jeans and underneath they had a cowboy outfit, you know what I mean? And suddenly they mm. can fly, they can go to the moon, get a hamburger at four <laughs> o'clock in the morning. It's fucking crazy. It was like a disease, yeah. you know, because there was yeah. nothing in this country that, you know, if you were of a particular age, too old for punk and two-tone and so on. And, you know, you, there was nothing, nothing. Mm. And it's, you know, it's tempting to indulge matchbox almost until you remember that, Fiery Jack, by The Fall, came out around this time. It had just come out, in fact, which functionally has the same groove as this record. But also, it makes you want to burn and crush everyone involved with Buzz, Buzz, A Diddle It. Uh, Partly (laughs) just because it's 40 million times better and seething with life and restless thoughts and energy rather than being a wheezy old, revivalist exercise but also because it's an infinitely more authentic rockabilly record precisely because it's not stylized and dressed up in cowboy gear it like goes deep in and actually reconnects with that frazzled sort of dark raw weirdness of the best 50s rockabilly records and the the unfriendly lunacy of them uh and it uses that connection to power its own freedom and originality. And you couldn't have a sharper contrast between two approaches to what is, on paper, the same kind of music. One of them completely open and alive, and the other one sealed up and, and numb and lifeless. You know, If you listen to Fiery Jack, you can say, like Mike Reed in the intro, that rock and roll never went away. Um, if you think of rock and roll as a method rather than a style. Uh, Mm.
5: And with all that in mind, yeah, you look at these pricks. It's like, oh, fuck them. Rock and roll never went away. It's making me think of that fucking tosser from Arctic Monkeys. (laughs) That old rock and roll. You know, and he does his fucking mic drop at the Brit Awards. The song, though, right? The song, obviously, by Freddie Cannon originally. It's a standard... um, telephone operator bothering song in the vein of the far superior Memphis, Tennessee. Um, So when they were choosing Mm. their songs, um, there must have been a reason why Matchbox didn't want to give any royalties to Chuck Berry. I can't imagine what it was.
1: I'm not sticking up for them. I think they're idiots. It's just knowing what the times were like, I don't know if they were consciously racist
5: idiots. It's a fair point, and I was just saying, don't trust them. Um, I can't prove anything, but I just get a bad vibe, which is equally, you know.
1: Well, that's just another form of racism. <laughs> yes.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
5: So the following week, Buzz a
3: diddle, it dropped two places to number 24, but a week later it went up to number 22, its highest position. The follow up. Midnight Dynamos got to number 14 in June of this year, and then they slowed it down in the latter half of 1980 when they took When You Ask About Love to number four and their cover of Over the Rainbow to number 15. Oh, God, have you seen the video of that on Top of the Pops? No. Graham Fenton's gone full Gene
5: Vincent, and he he just looks like Ted Bovis without (laughs) the moustache. They they would have been Ted Bovis's favorite band no question.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on future hangs on
1: you.
2: What a great rock and roll band they are. Max Box and BuzzFarge Buzz, did there I love the way he jumps up on the old double face. Works a treat that every time. Right, here comes Sheila and B. Devotion and Space.
3: camera pans up and away from the stage to reveal Reed standing in a ringed enclosure like a zoo exhibit and holding an old-fashioned bicycle horn for no reason whatsoever. After expressing his delight at seeing someone stand on a Nazi base, he links to a video of Spacer by Sheila B. Devotion. Born in Paris in 1945, Annie Chancel signed a deal with career records at the age of 16, was given the name Sheila, and became one of France's top female singers of the 60s, recording French-language versions of "Do-Wah Didi Didi and Tweedledee Tweedledum, amongst others. In 1973, she got married to the singer Ringo Willie Cat, and recorded as the duo Sheila and Ringo for a few years. In 1977, keen to break out of the Franco sphere and have a go at this newfangled disco music but not wanting to alienate her current fan base, she teamed up with B-Devotion, a trio of American soul singers, and put out the LP Love Me Baby under the name S.B. Devotion and had a worldwide hit with their cover of Singing in the Rain, which got to number 11 for two weeks in April of 1978. After she was altered by their label, they were renamed Sheila and B Devotion in France and America. But for one reason or another, the name Sheila B Devotion stuck over here and in other parts of Europe. This is the follow-up to seven Lonely days which failed to chart over here, and is the first cut from her new LP, King of the World, which has been written and produced by Niall Rogers and Bernard Edwards. After spending three weeks at number 33 over Christmas, it slowly dragged its way up the charts, and this week it's risen two places from number 22 to number twenty. So yeah, Reed calls them Sheila and B Devotion, while the chart rundown calls them Sheila B Devotion. But the pop crazy youngsters call them what they actually are: Chic with a French woman.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm saying Sheila and B Devotion because I've got the UK single of this, and that's what it says on there. So all right, yeah. um, Black Devotion. It was meant to be, wasn't it? Sheila and Black yes. Devotion. Yeah. Um, Differently
1: named in different territories, yeah. I believe.
5: Mm. like (laughs) Jif. Yeah, exactly.
3: I mean, Sheikah's still about in the UK charts, aren't they? My Feet Keep Dancing has dropped 10 places to number 31 this week. So whatever's going on in America, we love this shit. And rightfully so, I believe.
5: We do. I mean, I've often said that there are a handful of records, maybe 10 records, that when I'm hearing them, it's impossible to me that there's anything better in the world, that this is clearly the greatest record that's ever been made. Um, mm. And then when the record finishes, you might change your mind slightly, but just in that moment, uh, that's how you feel about it. And more than half of them involve Nile Rodgers and Sheik, and uh, and Spacer is way up there in that sort of top 10 for me. What I find astonishing is that Spacer was only number 18 in the UK, whereas her mm. crap disco version of Singing in the Rain that you mentioned was a bigger hit. Oh, it's awful. And even more astonishing to me Um, neither Sheila nor Spacer even get a mention in uh, Niall Rogers' autobiography, The Freak, which is a brilliant book. Really? Yeah, yeah, just does not get a mention. There is the sense that I found from other interviews that um, Niall and Bernard just felt it was a bit sort of tossed off and a bit, you know, half-assed. But, I mean, really, if if that's your tossed-off bullshit, then you are Mm. shitting gold at that point. Yes. Um, uh, apparently and I, I got this from um the uh, the daryl easley book about chic apparently they'd seen star wars and close encounters and they'd heard things like um sarah brightman's i lost my heart to a starship trooper and they just yeah. they just wanted to try making a sci-fi single for a laugh um mm. so the object of sheila's desire in a song is based on harrison ford as han solo that's who the spacer is it's basically right. Han solo um and yeah, in 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 the book, um, Nile Rogers actually uh, this Darryl Easley book, Nile Rogers says nothing. Sheik did was bullshit, but that was the closest thing to bullshit we'd ever done. I mean, I mm. just hugely disagree. Uh, it's I, I I've been to see Nile Rogers and Sheik many times the last ten fifteen years, and uh, very rarely do they play this song. But when they do, you you know, you're you're in luck because it's just phenomenal, and it's mm. not just about. Nile Rogers and that you know chucking as he calls it that guitar style of his um mm. it's it's about the piano on this record um, yeah it's uh the, the the sustain on those beautiful arpeggios you hear at the start that's Andy Schwartz, um who also plays an upside down and we are family Ooh. and loads of other sheet productions, so he deserves some credit um mm. I've got the album, this is from King of the World, the Sheila and B Devotion album, on the cover she's parachuting through a sky full of pterodactyls. And I, I think that, <laughs> that, that couldn't be more symbolic because it's like futuristic disco coming to save the world from rock dinosaurs. Mm. That's how I interpret it. Anyway, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Uh, the, Oh my word, the full, uh, 12 inch version of this sort of six minutes. fifteen. Yes. Oh, it is just out of this world. Um, if you'll pardon the pun. And, um, uh, sampled brilliantly um, uh, in the early noughties by Alcazar, Crying at the Discotheque, if you know that. Mm. And, um, yeah, I, I I just think um, one of the greatest um, uh, works from one of the greatest sort of production houses ever. So mm-hmm. um, the video's fairly standard, isn't it? Just silver jumpsuits and blue lasers and these glowing sticks, that are meant to make yes. us think of lightsabers, I think. So again, that ties it back into the idea that the spacer yeah. is Han Solo. The one thing that uh, used to confuse me, or that really surprised me about this record, was I've been getting the lyrics wrong for years, right? right? There's this bit where I thought it was going in his own special way, He is gentle and kind, oh gracious, yes. But no, it's going in his own special way, he's gracious and kind, oppression he hates. In a French accent, oppression yet. There's a lot
1: of oppression in space.
5: (laughs) Oh, yeah, there is. Over and
1: over again, when we watch these old episodes of Top of the Pops, we find that the records whose presentation and general visual and lyrical aesthetic make you laugh the most are the best records, or at least the sweetest, or the most interesting, or the most imaginative. And here we are again but at a whole new level, right? Mm. This, it's a fucking sheet record with added Avent's Euro atmosphere, mm. like pouting and louche, uh, presented like a Chinese-made toy ray gun in a pound shop, you know, <laughs> next to a musing duck and powerful fashion wristband, you know. <laughs> so, or more specifically, in fact, presented like... uh Luigi Cottsy's unsatisfying 1979 Star Wars clone, Star Crash, which is one of those films that manages to be completely unhinged and hilarious and really boring at the same Mm -hmm. time, except for the fact that whenever you see space in it, all the stars are different colours, like they've used fairy lights for the special (laughs) effects. It's genuinely adorable. But that film is like a more heterosexual version of this except that the deeper you go in a star crash the more crap you find it's like mm. falling into neptune you know it's just yeah. blue gas all the way through the only difference is it's colder and denser the nearer you get to the heart of it whereas inside this hilarity is a beautiful pop record which is undeniably brilliant in almost every way. Mm. I'm not sure that contrast has ever been that stark. Uh, I love how there's nothing weighty about it, like no substance at all Mm. to the music, no sort of heft. Um, There's a hell of a lot of musical activity happening in there when you listen closely. Like there's a lot of instruments playing a lot of notes, uh, Mm. but it just creates this glide, this sort of frictionless drift. You know, everything's lighter than air. Like, even with that big clumping piano cadence at the end of each line in the verse, you know, and it's got a big rock guitar solo, but it's all just, like, sweet gas, you know. The groove just sweeps everything along. It's a beautiful construction, and it's quite right that, the the, as with most records in that vein, the best version is the 12-inch version because it's just the same but more of it, and Mm. it includes that bit where... Most of the arrangement just melts away and it just leaves the rhythm track ticking
5: over yeah. by itself yeah. for about a minute,
1: like a happiness machine, just churning away. Oh, it's so good.
5: <laughs> also, something that makes this um, almost unique, I think, among Sheep Productions is that Niall decided to do a bit of soloing. It's like, oh, now, 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 starts rocking out a bit, a bit sort of Eddie Van Halen kind of stuff. Uh makes it unusual, but, yeah, Um just immaculate.
1: By the way, what I did find while going through Sheila's old stuff on YouTube, um, and I like a lot of old French pop, but yeah, most of this is not so good. But what I found, which was wonderful, was a fan-made slideshow video to accompany mm. her so-so 1976 Euro hit "Le Fam," which is like a second most famous and second best record after this one um and it's anyway it's titled ma video de sheila semicolon les femmes all in caps lock and what it is is a sequence of composite images fading into each other in which sheila pictured at various points in her career is photoshopped badly into a variety of scenarios like leaning in the stock photos of bunny rabbits and rearing <laughs> up in the foreground of Christmas card scenes. <laughs> and best of all, giant-sized emerging head and shoulders from a mountain stream behind an Alsatian. Um, <laughs> it's clearly made with real love and it's absolutely terrifying.
3: So the following week, space arose another two places to number 18, its highest position. The follow-up, King of the World, failed to chart and the group were immediately disbanded when Sheila wanted to back the fuck away from disco and become a mum rock singer. Oh, Sheila... (laughs)
1: Hello and welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley, And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. Martin's voice jumped up onto my back (laughs) and sneaked round to the side of my neck and went down my throat and then came out again. And suddenly, there he was.
5: I think I'm the only scaffolder or ex-scaffolder to have been on a BAFTA-type stage.
4: There's more money in faces. There's more money in faces, but there's no control that's what I like, I like can't control, control I can't control where I put my face
5: and Rory sort of pitched to James can, the, can flute be the last word because I think that's the funniest mm. word to end on and James went I know it is and that's why I don't want it to be at the end <laughs> but yep. there's
4: this idea yep. that there's a limited amount of space for funny it's like when men think they have to go out with someone who's not funny <laughs> as if like but if she's funny what will I do You're like,
0: you'll both laugh you
4: will both have a laugh
2: Devotion at number 20 with Spacer. Bright chums, it's time for the Regents with 17, and you'll notice the lead singer is wearing a seatbelt in case the girls try and pull him off into the audience.
3: cross-fade to a guitar neck as Reed introduces Seventeen by the Regents. Formed in London in 1978, the Regents recorded this, their debut single, in the shared house of singer Martin Scheller and bassist Damien Pugh on a four-track which landed them a deal with Rialto Records. After putting it out in 1979, they were advised to change a line in the lyrics to make it more radio-friendly, and after an appearance on Top of the Pops when it was stuck at number 72 and heavy rotation on Mike Reed's Breakfast Show, it took three weeks to enter the top 40, and this week, it's up 11 places to number 22. Reed's introduction, though. Fucking hell. <laughs> You'll notice the lead singer is wearing a seatbelt in case the girls try to pull him off into the audience. This is the man who banned Relax, for fuck's sake. Hey, uh... Do we know what line they changed? Yes. Oh, no, go on. Go on, Taylor. Um,
1: it was permanent erection.
3: Erection! Yes, yes. <laughs> changed
1: to, uh, what was it permanent <laughs> reaction? Reaction, yes. Yeah, Mike Reed wouldn't have been quite so jovial.
3: Yeah, this is a prime example of an Aventis one-hit wonder which you can put alongside Echo Beach, Turning Japanese, My Sharona, Is Vic There? And Love Will Tear Us Apart. (laughs) (laughs) Because they were, it was a one-hit wonder, Joy Division. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, by this point, in an episode of Top of the Pops, you're always grateful for anything that is hard to place. You watch it Hmm. and you can't quite work out what it is. Or what it's meant to be doing, um, which is true of this, right? I mean, it's sort mm. of, I guess, it's two parts Delta Five to one part Dolly mixture, you know. Mm. But this is the thing; it, it makes sense in the context of 1980 much more than it does now, you know. You, you, you research it and it's not much of a surprise to find out that at least some of them were art students at St mm. Martins you know and it, you, you go back to 1980 there was a fair bit of music that was sort of like this sonically and or spiritually but most of it is more or less forgotten now because it was more about ideas than it was mm. about a pleasing sound you know and what you did was more important than how you did it and everything had to sound slightly austere and unfriendly uh, because mm. it wasn't the old days anymore or because comfort was bourgeois or uh, because if you strip something down, people can get get closer to the heart of it or because it was considered to be a part of the demystification process, you know, or mm. because nobody had any money for gear or studio time, yeah. except what they could prize out of their m- invariably middle-class families um or the grants, right right yeah but I mean that's the thing even with this televisual record and a little bit of background detail we still don't really know what the point of this record was because these records were not self-contained this was a time when there was a discourse around music you know and people would read music papers and talk about stuff and it's mm. like oh what are they doing what are they about it was a big yeah. thing and when that's gone which it has when you just see this out of context, you don't really know. Like these people, they could have been anarchists or they could have been arch satirists or club trendies, you know, mm. or 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 feminist revolutionaries or just chancers trying to follow mm. a trend for that sort of spindly music that's all the rage in the NME, you know. That's mm. what's so weird. When the context is gone, so is half the act. Uh, it's still quite good though, isn't it? Mm. but when people hear that music now and they don't know anything about it, what they do is take it at face value and just listen to the sound. Uh, Mm. And people in general, they tend to like a sound that's sweet or rocking, you know? Yeah. Uh, And this is extremely neither of those things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why people still listen to rumours or never mind the bollocks more than they listen to the raincoats or the fire engines, you know, even though they were great. And speaking of rumours, uh, Mm. Doesn't this sound like it was built on the rhythm track of Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, which is virtually identical, except that the rhythm track to Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, it sounds like you're gliding up the escalator to heaven, whereas this sounds Mm. like riding a penny farthing over a ploughed field, but otherwise identical.
5: Yeah, it's funny, uh, a record that I've loved ever since it came out and I bought at the time, and yet I've got far less to say about it than Taylor, who I think has only recently d- discovered it. Um, but that's often the way it goes. Um, yeah. it's, it's had a weird kind of uh, shadow life in pop culture, this song. It's not really ever been considered uh, one of the sort of defining, um, iconic songs of the new wave, and yet mm. it'll always, you know, it'll be on, let's say, the best punk album in the world ever, 2.0 you know yes. uh it's it's that sort of thing it's it's kind of um treated as a barrel scraping but um at the time i i i really liked it um uh, i i get what taylor means with references to um did he say delta five and yeah, uh what was the yeah. other one um who else did you say Deaf school dolly mixtures um uh and yeah and there's you know people like um girls are best and yeah all that kind of stuff Modets and this and that a bit yeah. of deaf school and things like that but um a comparison occurred to me that's maybe not the most obvious, but I think there's something in it. It's not dissimilar to the stuff the police were doing at the time, mm. but what it is, it's if you imagine a police record, but without the beefy middle bit, with all the sort of beefy flesh, the middle bit, stripped out, mm. so that all that's left is the spindly bits, it's the points, the spikes, the angles, yeah. the pointy yeah. bits. Um that's what this record is really it's a very pointy spindly record um uh, i it's, it's partly visual suggestion that makes me think of it that way because it was on the rialto label which had a sort of punky spiky looking logo um mm. but, but it really does sound like that um and i thought i think at the time i, I didn't quite get what they were talking about um ob- obviously it's it's a fairly standard uh rock and roll jailbait themed song even though 17 is legal but you know it's one of those things Mm. that it's it's been there through rock history of slightly older men fetishizing slightly younger women and and writing a song about the kind of forbidden fruit or not quite forbidden fruit um they're just doing it and but they make it quite clear that she's only interested in a, a future boy yeah uh boys love future girls that's a good line I don't quite know what yes. it means, but it just—it's uh, because they all sing that line, don't they? They all come in on that well, line like it's th- really meaningful. Sheila f- B. Devotion. <laughs> well, yeah, and I—I um, I just thought these are modern people. I want to be like them. Um, mm. the, the singer guy's got that kind of Malcolm McLaren bubble hair, which it, uh, hasn't date, yes. hasn't dated that well. But um, even the way I, I think that the. Um, the producers at the BBC uh, sort of sense that this is one of those edgy uh, new wave records. Let's do something different for it. They do that three way split screen trick uh, with, yes. with it, which is quite nice. Um, the backing mm. singers carry a lot of the weight of this track, actually, don't they? Um yes. With, you know, reaction and mutant and that's all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um And yeah, it just really works for me. Um, they were a a one-hit wonder, which suggests there might not be any more to them, but I am kind of intrigued. After all these years, 40 fucking years, maybe I need to try and pick up that LP on vinyl and just inhale the dust of a lost time and see if there's anything in it for me. There might be.
3: Mm. I was confused by this song as well, but mainly through the line all the girls just love to hate her, uh, all the boys they want to make her. Mm. I wasn't aware of the term make. I'm still not now. It's a fucking stupid way of of saying shag yeah. so I just, I just thought all oh, the boys want to
5: stuff some of the mum's tights with newspaper <laughs> and make a guy friend yeah like that that goldie looking chain song I made a corned mm. beef Kelly Osborne, and I fucked it when I was watching porn <laughs> anything else to say about this yeah
1: the top of the pop's audience seemed distinctly unmoved literally it's
3: like it's, as they have been throughout the whole yeah, fucking episode it's
1: like a wax museum down the front and i yeah. don't think they're stunned i think they're just sort of unengaged you know i don't know what mm. it, it can't be that the group looked like decades because a lot of groups did you know nobody cared mm. I, I think they just find it a bit stringy and remote which it is but that's the point yeah. isn't it Probably.
3: Yeah. We don't know. So the following week, 17 soared 10 places to number 12. And the week after that, it nipped up to number 11, its highest position. The follow-up, see you later got to number 55 in June of this year and was due another leg up on top of the Pops, but a strike by the Musicians Union that week knocked the show off the air. It slithered down the charts and when their next two singles flopped, they called it a day in 1981. Martin Scheller went on to form The Bic with his partner Bic Brack, the blonde singer who had moderate success in German air, while her co singer Kath Bess became an actor.
2: Number 22 this week, that 17. It comes from the Regents, who took their name from a while in London Park, Hyde Park. Second week at number one: Pretenders and Brass in Pocket.
4: Got in
0: pocket. got Fido. I'm gonna use it.
3: Reid, obviously not going to be allowed to stand next to the general public, drops a shit joke about parks in London, and then whips us into this week's number one, Brass in Pocket by the Pretenders. Or, if you Blue Tulip Rose Reed, fwoar, Pretenders! <laughs> Formed in London in 1978, the Pretenders were the band created for Chrissy Hind, a transplanted American who wrote for the NME in the early 70s before working in Malcolm McDonald's. Malcolm McDonald's? <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only sex had been owned by Malcolm McDonald. Can you imagine the sex pistols being managed by Malcolm McDonald? <laughs> Before working in Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westman's expensive perf shop. Her first kick of the musical arse was when she joined McLaren's band Masters of the Backside with a sort of future members of the damned before she formed the Moors Murderers with Steve Strange. <laughs> On the encouragement of Dave Hill, who just started his label Real Records and isn't the wrong fringe Slade guitarist, she recorded a demo of her songs with Phil Taylor of Motorhead and The Pretenders were put together. And their debut single, a cover of the 1964 Kinks LP track Stop Your Sobbing, got to number 34 in March of 1979. This single, the follow-up to Kid, which got to number 33 in August of 1979, is the lead-off track from their debut LP, Pretenders, which went straight into number one at the LP chart last week, ripping ABBA's Greatest Hits Volume 2 off the summit. After dithering around the lower reaches of the singles chart in December, it suddenly soared 20 places to number 10 on Christmas week of 1979. And three weeks later, it finally usurped another brick in the wall from the top of the charts, becoming the
5: first number one of the 80s. And this is its second week at number one you know there's this whole thing about the pretenders being hyped into the charts yes uh satin tour jackets and all yes. that yes um i thought i'd check up on this in uh, chrissy Hines' book reckless mm. and she's quite sanguine about the whole thing um her idea is is uh, uh very much the kind of uh hunter s thompson line you know the music business is this sort of vile venal money trench and this kind of stuff um, and, and, and she, she's fine with that, she, she thinks it's just a you know, total corrupt cesspit and that's the game, that's the game you've got to play mm. um, and she, she says thanks John Fruin, she thanks John <laughs> Fruin in the book, um, uh, BA Robertson's mate um, yeah. I mean we've talked about the World in Action documentary The
3: Chartbusters before I, I digged a little bit deeper this time here's, here's a list of the other hyped records that are mentioned in that documentary, so you've got all right. Bang Bang, B.A. Cunterson. New Amsterdam, Elvis Costello. Tusk, the LP and the single, Fleetwood Mac. Luton Airport by Cats UK. Cars by Gary Newman. That's insane. Love's Got a Hold on Me by Dollar. It's My House by Storm, which is the reggae cover of the Diana Ross song. It's My House by Diana Ross. WEA hyped up uh, the reggae version to try and stop Diana Ross's version from getting up the top of the charts. Uh, My Tune by The Cool Notes. Girl, It's All I Have by Shy. OK Fred by Errol Dunclair, Silly Games by Janet Kay. No. Hey Girl by The Expressos, which actually got deleted from the charts. The Runaway by Elkie Brooks. That was the one that got a tick every time a shop sold Roxanne by the police. And if I said you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against me by the Bellamy Brothers? Wow. But I have to contend that this song shows that, you know, chart Riggins not just there for the nasty things in life. I think this is a fitting first number one of the 80s myself.
5: Maybe you should talk about it, Al. Why didn't, you, why didn't you go first for once? I'm not. I'm not the music writer. I just think it's a brilliant song. I love it. I mean, it is a brilliant song, but I didn't really understand that at the time. I didn't understand this um i did know who it was for what it was doing mm. um it it's just i think it's the way that it proceeds at this kind of quite tentative compromised gentle plod you know the rhythm of it it's and and yet they looked and she looked like you know a bit rock and roll a bit edgy a bit part of the new mm. wave but they didn't sound like that. And and the name, The Pretenders, sounded like a bit of a throwback, like mm. The Platters or The Coasters or even like The New Seekers or something like that. Yeah. One of those kind of bands. And-
3: Named after The Great Pretender, which was one of Chrissie Hines' ex's favourite songs, apparently. Right,
5: yeah. And and um, in in a lot of ways, I, I, I sort of felt they were throwbacks and maybe um, they, they were a band who really were appealing to people who... Um, Hadn't given up on pub rock and that sort of pre-punk, um, yeah, melod- melodic stuff. She she had been around a while. I mean, she uh, you, you've given a, a little potted biog there. The thing that blows my mind: she was at the Kent State shootings. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know the. Uh, Notorious, you know, one of these things that's held up as, along with Altamont and various other things, as being um, symbolic of the death of the '60s dream, that mm. the um, the the Vietnam protesters, anti-Vietnam protesters, were uh, were shot at the Kent State Uni in Ohio, and uh, and she was there. So it, and that seems like a different century, never mind a different yeah. decade. Um, so she'd been around she'd earned her stripes um I, I actually teach about her at, at bim when i t- teach about um, her oh, really? journalistic career yeah her journalistic career it's quite interesting this is no kind of inference on her or any other female writers of that generation but it's really notable that um uh, so many of the um well-known female writers in the music press of the 70s got their job because of who their boyfriend was and mm-hmm. in her case it was nick kent yeah um uh all all the uh, accounts I've read, he comes out of it really badly. Like right. you know, basically he punched her, he beat her up or whatever. And this is why um I don't know if you've heard the story of Nick Kent being beaten with yeah. a motorbike chain by Sid Vicious. Well apparently it was revenge for that. Right. Because, you know, Chrissy Hines and Sid Vicious were close mates and all they that. They worked together at, the, yeah, yeah, at exactly. the shop, didn't they? So so there's all this. She 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 was obviously somebody who, who brings a lot of life experience to her songs and and this is it it's it's the song of an experienced person it's not not an ingenue who's who's singing this um i remember when it was on top of Pot's first time or certainly one time my dad telling me she's sexy and i didn't really know what sexy meant because i was too young but you know but it's <laughs> like he didn't it's... know
3: why he said peter powell was a
5: perv yeah yeah exactly but the idea of her being sexy rather than pretty, because most of the sort of women stars that I, I would have been attracted to by like Agnetta from ABBA and Livy Newton-John, they were pretty. But Chrissy Hind, it's more this kind of vibe, isn't it? It's a sort of sexy thing in the voice, the sort of slight crack in her voice and the way she sings, just the sort of poise she has um, in, in the performance. Um, sometimes that goes overboard, <laughs> the bit where she goes, I'm winking at you. And I just think there's something really comical about that, because have you seen the video to this? No. The video's great. Um, she uh, Another job she had as well as being a music journalist uh, was uh, um, working in a, in a cafe. And they shot the video in a typical kind of British Greasy Spoon cafe. And she's been this kind of saucy waitress just like flirting with the customers and like winking at them in a really exaggerated way. It's quite <laughs> quite comical. I wish they'd shown that on top of the pops. But I was going to say about her, her journalism, she she was a classic case of uh, writing uh, extreme negative reviews to get attention, mm. and we've all done it. Uh, yeah. Her first, the first example for her was uh, Neil Diamond. There was a Neil Diamond album. She totally destroyed it, and she started getting death threats at the enemy offices. Uh, and immediately, the enemy were like, oh, right, well, you know, this is great. Um, oh, uh, let's no. let's let's give her give her mm. give her a front cover story." So they sent her off to interview Brian Eno for the front cover. Um, <laughs> So, you know, that, that, that sort of t- tells you a lesson about the music press back in the day. I think it would get you sacked now. It would be completely the opposite. Mm. But, yeah, she's a total badass, and I, I love her. I've interviewed her um, a couple of times. She's a fantastic interviewee. I really admire her stance on animal rights. Yeah. Um, one time I, uh, I interviewed her, she she gave me this terrifying bag of sweets, that she just brought back from Finland called Turkisk Peber, and they you, they blow your mouth off. They're just insane. I'm not sure if that was some kind of trick, like some evil trick she's playing on me there. But I I, I really like her. I, I probably like I like her more than I like the Pretenders records. Mm. This record for me, um, it is. If 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 one can react to music objectively, and I don't know if you can, mm. but objectively, it is a great great song, brilliantly mm. put together and um I think it's it 's probably d- dated better it's It seems more timeless now than you know I spoke about at the time it felt like an old fashioned record to me mm. I think it it 's actually you know it, it feels more um, more i don 't know modern but but out of time now than than it did then, which is probably um something that speaks well of it. The only other thing I was going to say about this performance I meant to say this during the Joe Jackson one. The backdrop on Top of the Pops uh, Mm. uh, at this time, it looks like those fidget spinners you get in agents now, but kind of like broken apart into bits. Isn't it weird? Yeah. So um, I'll now hand over to somebody more eloquent to talk about Brass in Pocket. They're not here. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about
1: the Pretenders, I I just don't see it, right? Mm. Like To me, the Pretenders are a monument to grinding, uneventful competence. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I can see that this music has a sort of quality to it, but I can't see how it's anything more than moderately dull. Mm. Um, you know, I, I appreciate this is probably their best record and it has a certain momentum and grace to it, uh, but I just think there are other important things missing that are stopping it from being good. You know, it's like a, it sounds like a drained blondie like drained of life, drained of excitement, drained of drama. Uh, and I don't like the half-hearted, rockist pose, and I don't like the tasteful sound. Um, can't bear the lack of surprises. It's just this sullen, plodding music with a horrible sense of its own seriousness, even though there's nothing really serious or meaningful about it. They're just like a boring pop-rock band for civil servants and... Deputy headmasters to get their leather jacket on, you know, and feel like they're part of a subculture. Um, doesn't doesn't do it for me at all. Or maybe I just don't care for it the same way I don't care for Echo and the Bunnymen. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I got nothing against them particularly. If someone's playing an Echo and the Bunnymen record, I don't have to leave the room. Um, and they did a few good ones, but if you ask me, do I like Echo and the Bunnymen? No. To me, they. Uh, they just sound like a posture in rock band, you know, very blank and empty, mm. you know, hollow. But the difference is the best echo in the bunny men track is actually great. Whereas the best pretenders track is this. And can you imagine the pretenders ever suddenly turning around and making a record like the killing moon? It's unimaginable because that sulky traditionalism was all they had in their heads. So Nothing else could come out, even by happy accident. Don't like it. Um, I'm not not fond of Chrissy Hind either. I just find something disagreeable. I knew you wouldn't. It, you know? I knew it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, what it is, it's 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 that it's, she's just. It's the Geldof thing again to me. It's someone whose sense of their own personal rightness isn't in any way softened or informed by the possibility that they might be an idiot like everyone else after all when people have that it tends to mean no playfulness you know no humor Mm. no ambiguity it's just this idea that the spunkier you act the writer you are you know and a, a lot of people from this era of rock music had it and I don't really like it I just find it mock youthful you know it's like it it's not the actual reckless insanity of youth. It just seems immature, you know. If you're going to make pop music when your whole band is about 30, and remember that, you know, 30 was the old 45, mm. um, you have to make a choice. You either be unashamedly childish or find a way for your age and experience to inform and enrich and deepen the music that you're making, uh, And I suppose some people would say the Pretenders did that. But to me, they're a perfect example of a rock band that's too old to be silly and too dull to have any depth. It's just, you know, it's lukewarm water. And I've heard a lot worse, and this isn't a bad song, and their other bigots aren't terrible either. Um, But you can say that about the police, you know. Mm. And they're impossible to love too, you know. And, yeah, Sting and Chrissy Iron maybe got a bit more in common than... Either might like to think. I don't know. It's uh, just you know, like Goldoff, they don't have the decency to either be intriguingly smart or dumb enough to just fucking get on with it.
3: One thing that's just done my head in is I've I had this image in my head while I was watching this episode of Top of the Pops: Chrissy Hander be there on stage, first number one of a new decade, and Susie Quattro being the wings watching on approvingly at the younger generation taking the ball and running with it, fucking.
5: Chrissie Hind's only one year younger than Susie Quattro. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I quoted uh, Hind earlier on writing about Susie Quattro. So, yeah, they were kind of contemporaries in the early days. Yeah. And also, um, Chrissy Hind, when she decided to pack in being a music journalist, sold her um, typewriter to Julie Birchill. Right. <laughs> so uh, so it's her fault. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Al, you're from Nottingham, obviously, which is not the yes. north, but it's 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 adjacent to the north. Yes, north um, adjacent. Yeah. Does is, is the phrase brass in pocket a thing there or not? No, not not, not brass, but I knew what brass meant. Because yeah. that's
3: a weird thing, isn't it? She's dropping brass and bottle and, and all that kind of stuff.
5: Yeah. So reet and stuff like that. Yeah, yes. So particularly so stuff. reet,
3: yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know bit, I don't know what the northernisms are are about yeah. there, to be honest. Makes it sound like a
5: rocking bet lynch. <laughs> I think that's sort of something faintly charming about it, actually. But there we go. Yeah.
3: So the following week, Brass in Pockets slipped down to number two, replaced by Too Much Too Young. And the follow up, Talk of the Town, would get to number eight in April of this year.
2: Jensen's got Chrissy Hine on round table on Radio 1 tomorrow afternoon. Right, time for me to go. I'm on the wireless in a minute. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
4: At 17, we fell in
2: love. High school sweethearts. Love was so brand new. We took the vows of man and
4: wife
2: forever for life.
3: Back under the blow-up of his signature, Shills Tomorrow Night's Round Table on Radio One with Chrissy Hind and Stuart Coleman, who led a protest march to the Radio One officers in nineteen seventy six, demanding that they play rock and roll and was immediately offered a weekly show. Fucking hell,
5: man. The way people got jobs back in the day it's upsetting. That's um that's that's how I got my job. Yeah. <laughs> At the Barry District News, so you know Yes. Steady on.
3: Oh no, I'm not knocking it, mate. he'd also go on to produce this old house for chicken steven he then stumbles through his sign off leaving us with the sound of too hot by cool and the gang We've covered Cool and the Gang in chart Music 11, and this is the follow-up to Ladies' Night, the single that introduced them to the UK when it got to number nine in November of 1979. It's the second cut from the LP Ladies' Night. It entered the top 40 last week, and this week it's gone up six places from number 29 to number 23. And here's a snatch of it while we look at the credits. I mean, there has been a distinct lack of shots of the audience in this episode, as we've pointed out, which, is, which always upsets me. And once again, we've been denied at the death because we get that standard fisheye lens sweep over the studio lights, which is pretty boring when you've seen it over and over and over. But it does give us a
5: chance to see how Top of the Pops would have looked like for Julian Cope when he was on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're right. It's bullshit, isn't it? It's like, fun time's over. Go and do your homework. Mm. You know, essentially. Yeah. Um one thing I noticed about this episode actually, um and it's sort of thrown into relief by the sudden arrival of a funk disco act, there's been hardly any black artists on this show. There's been two members of the specials mm. and Be Devotion. Yeah. And that's basically it. Um so yeah, the follow up to the Well they saw, they saw Night, Matchbox and boycotted. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh so the follow up to Ladies' Night and it's midway between Ladies' Night and Celebration, um, both in terms of their discography and in terms of um, musical style, and it's very much the shark jump moment, I think, because Ladies' Night was just a fantastic, just a killer funk track. Mm. They were still a sort of top quality funk band um, on Ladies' Night, mm. but um, from the moment they bring out Celebration, it's just cheese all the way, isn't mm. it? Really, the cool and the gang. This is oh, this they kind one of,
3: or two decent ones. Get down on well, it. after
5: Celebration, uh, you can't really. Argue with that. Oh I can, you know, well, but we haven't got you know, time. I'd rather dance um, to be <laughs> Okay. I mean, alright, it's quite this track, um, Too Hot, it's very slight, um, nothingy. Uh, I mean it's quite nice, the Diodato production. It's the forerunner to Jones versus Jones, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's divorce pop. And the the fact that we only get this song over the credits uh, you know, with a fisheye lens. You don't feel short-changed by that you think well fine no it's in fact it's a perfect top and tail for the episode because we start with azimuth yes. uh similar yes. thing just you know sort of funk instrumental sort of thing that uh, you're not really that mm. bothered about and and uh here we are at the end with with a funk track that's you know d- it you know it, it it just washes over you and it's not <laughs> like the other week where we had born to be alive by patrick yeah. hernandez at the end getting us all fired well getting me fired up anyway maybe not anyone else <laughs> um so yeah um I suppose um, it, it was. it's just serving a function here on the show, isn't it? Like, let's take it home. Yeah. yeah.
1: I woke up today and realised, because I've been quite ill this week, and I realised to my horror that I'd forgotten all about this one. <laughs> uh, I haven't made any notes or given it any thought. So I'm afraid my contribution to uh, this particular track is going to have... It's gonna, this episode for me is going to have the same kind of non-big finish as Mike Reed's presentation. Where he just goes right, I'm off. Got to go on the radio. Bye. Yeah. And he's like, oh, right, well, okay, see ya. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't mind this record, but like most '80s cool in the gang, it's soppy in a way that you only barely get away with if you've got a rhythm section like this, mm. you know, and uh, you never could otherwise. It's like their funkiness is flaking off, and you can sort of see bits of cherish underneath. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, if you can forget that, um, you know, it's quite nice. Mm. Can I check something though? Go on. At the end of these BBC Four repeats, you get this fisheye lens, you know, yeah. rolling around the studio lights for about a minute or two after the credits are finished. So mm. we end up hearing most of the song, right? Yeah. Well, this programme didn't actually end like that at the time. Did no, it? no, I don't or think did it, it did. No, no because I don't remember watching fairy lights through a gyroscope, you know, with no words on the screen for two whole minutes at the end of every Top of the Pops. I think it's something I would remember or something I should remember, like thinking up something to say about Too Hot by Cool and the Gang, but Mm. managed to forget that. So, you know. And that closes the book
3: on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards, I hear you say, BBC one immediately pitches into wildlife on one where David Attenborough visits Zen, the macaque monkey who goes to work on a bike. Then it's Watch This Space, the Lisa Goddard, Peter Blake and Christopher Biggins sitcom about an ad agency. Then it's the nine o'clock news, then play for today presents thicker than water written by Brian Glover about a black pudding competition in Normandy. That's followed by the 1980 European Figure Skating Championships from Gothenburg and then Platform One, the interview show which this week features Sir Derek Rayner of Marks & Spencers, who's just been appointed as Margaret Thatcher's personal advisor on wasting government. BBC Two has begun its patently obvious, the guest, the Mad Invention quiz show featuring Julian Pettifer and Wilf Lunn, followed by the documentary series Public School, then MASH, then Man Alive asks if parents of a 15-year-old girl should be informed that she wants to go on the pill. Then it's Richard Stilgo, who takes another optimistic look at the news and events of the week with special guest Barbara Dixon. And they round off the evening with highlights from the final of the Benson and Hedges One Day Cricket World Series Cup between England and the West Indies. ITV have just started part six of The Victim in their armchair thriller series. Then it's TVI, the American Cop Show Chief of Detectives, The News at 10, the local current affairs show Format V or Format 5, I don't know. Regional news in your area, Lou Grant and they close out the night with the militaristic, God-bothering, closed-down prayer with your boots on. So, me boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow?
5: Nothing, because I was in a prison camp and everyone there was treated like prisoners. Oh,
1: mate. Well, specials are always a favourite, just for that essence of youth, which mm. kids picked up on. Um, and we would respond to stuff like the Regent's. Um, You know, you got a slimy skanking singer and two grange ill voiced, you know, <laughs> feminist, feminist theatre group girls doing silly dances. You did notice that. Mm. Nowadays, people I think would look at it and just think it looked like the early 80s, but it, you know, mm. it would have been noticed in playgrounds of the day. It was more stuff like Sheila Brackett and Be Devotion, mm. which looks stranger and more eye catching now. Yeah. But, you know, back then, i don't know it's it that it It was that kind of stuff was par for the course wasn't it yeah it was just a better version of other stuff that was around And when you're a kid that distinction was too subtle it was like Mm. between cheap and expensive pate you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference and what were we buying on saturday
5: um i didn't buy anything on saturday because i was in prison but um when we got to the (laughs) easter holidays i bought a whole load of these actually um yeah, oh, really? um, whether I got them full price or got them sort of a knockdown on one of those um, uh, sort of greetings card spinners that used to put sort of discounted records on in newsagents and stuff like that. But I definitely owned uh, the following, the Buggles, Boomtown Rats, Bee Gees, Dollar, Specials, Sheila B. Devotion and the Regents. And I didn't buy the Pretenders at the time, but you know, years later I acquired it. So yeah, quite a lot of this episode is in my collection.
1: Yeah, buggles and specials. I don't think Joe Jackson would have meant much to me as a kid. Oh, I bought that B- as well.
5: Fucking hell, yeah.
1: Yeah. Beezy's record would just have sounded like the wind in a shrubbery <laughs> yeah. uh, at that age. And Sheila B. Devotion would have felt like somebody else's business, I think.
3: Mm.
5: I went out and bought Too Much Too Young. Yeah, that's the one uh, I bought full yeah. price. I wasn't messing about with that. I just had to have it. Yeah. No, no. And what does this
3: episode tell us about January of 1980?
5: Um, a lot of the new wave is actually the old wave in disguise. Um, space Disco 1, Mum Disco nil, and Two-Tone Will Save Us All.
1: Uh, chilly, chilly and dark. Um, for some people that's an excuse and for others it's a reason to create, to generate warmth and light.
3: I think Pop's in rude health judging by yeah. this episode of Top of the Pops in January of 1980. But the really strange thing is, how many of these acts are still going to be going in January of 1982?
1: Mm. Dollar. Yeah. From strength to strength. <laughs> and
3: that, Pop Craze Youngsters, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. Promotional flange. www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast Get us on Twitter, chart Music T O T P, money down the G string, slash chartmusic. Thank you, Taylor Parks. Yeah, uh, see ya. Big up your send Simon Price. You're welcome. My name's Al Needham, yeah. and uh, hang on. I can still do this. Wait a minute.
4: Danger <laughs> freaks. <laughs> shark music I like your mother Sister and brother
3: Powers the world's best podcast. Here's a show that we recommend.
4: This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be sure. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear. Of-